Well, a couple months ago, Rhonda and I had gone up to Grand Junction. We were just spending the evening up there, and for whatever reason, we needed to stop by Target to look at whatever might be going on there. You know, we might need something, and uh, I know there's a Target here, but we were just wanting to walk around. And so we were there, and uh, we were just walking around the store, and uh, there was a lot of people lined up to, to go to, to buy stuff, and I was standing there watching the people. Rhonda was looking at something, I'm not sure what, but I was just watching the people. I do that sometimes. And I said, Rhonda, Rhonda, this guy over here, he looks like Keith Neal. Now, you don't know Keith Neal. He was a, a young, uh, Keith and Peggy were a young adult uh, couple. They were a couple that we ministered to in our previous church in Wiggins, and I was not expecting to see anyone that looked like him there in Grand Junction. So I'm like, Rhonda, this guy looks just like Keith Neal. And she looked, and I'm like, wait a minute. Rhonda, that is Keith Neal. And uh, lo and behold, it was Keith and Peggy. Um, we hadn't seen him in like four years. And uh, went up to him and said, what are, you, what are you doing here? I mean, what are you doing in Grand Junction at Target? Um, we talked, caught up, was able to affirm a relationship we hadn't affirmed in about four years and uh, hugged them and got caught up on their kids, and it was just a real nice experience. But maybe you've had an experience like that. Have you ever had an experience like that where you, you recognize somebody or think you might recognize somebody, and then, and then you do? You, you, you say, oh, I do know them. Or maybe, um, what's more often than not for me, I should recognize somebody, and I don't, and then I start talking. I'm like, oh, I know you. And uh, but you start, you start this recognizing thing and uh, be able to affirm relationships and amaze that you're meeting somebody in a place you shouldn't meet. And that, that's a little bit like our lives. There are experiences that we have. And uh, in that middle of experience, we think, boy, something's going on here. Is that God? I might be recognizing that God might be working here. Or we sit down and think of our experience later and we think, wow, God just did something and I didn't, I, I didn't even notice it. And all of a sudden, God showed up and we start recognizing that God is, is working. And, and some, some, my, my point is sometimes that we think that God might be in it, but the truth is God is in it. Whatever it is, God is in the middle of our lives working. Whatever's going on, God is working to show himself to us in some way. And our job is to recognize that. And so we've been, we, and, and it's more, uh, the, the more we get used to recognizing his character, the more we start recognizing his work in our lives, the more that we see him daily involved in, in our lives, then the more we grow, the more we mature, the more we become more like him. We, we start looking for him, how he's, how he's working in our lives everywhere. To put it another way, which is the title of the sermon, there's, there's no revival without recognizing who God is. We've been talking about 
revival. The people of God in Nehemiah's day, they had regathered in Jerusalem. They'd been in slavery for 70 years, and Ezra brought back a group of people, and they started rebuilding the temple. And then another group came back, and they finished building the temple. Then another group came back, and they started finishing the wall so that they would be protected and regain their identity. And the people had gathered there at the temple, and, and Ezra opened up God's word, and revival began to break out, and people began to to be changed by what was going on there. And we learned uh, a couple weeks ago that in chapter 8 that there is no revival in our life or in the life of the church without opening up the word of God and being engaged in it. We cannot have revival if we are not in God's word. Last week we talked that there is no revival unless we deal with our sin, individually and corporately. That if we are looking for revival, these are aspects that need to happen. It's not one thing. It's all these steps that are needed in order to engage in revival. And today I want to tell you from from Nehemiah 9 that there is no revival unless we begin to recognize who God is. So all this chapter, remember last week they ended with, with uh, arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Bless is the idea of praising God. It is uh, saying great things about who God is, and they start, and that's what chapter 9 is. Chapter 9 is just them saying everything they can think of about how great our God is. And so he's going to go on, uh, they're, they're going to go on and on. And, and this is a, at least a couple weeks sermon, uh, probably two weeks, uh, depends how much I can get through today. So, uh, but there's four aspects I want to talk about God today, and then there's four next week. There are more than eight aspects of God. You get that? I mean, we can go on and on and on, but they, in their praise, kind of point out about eight, eight aspects of God. And I want to remind you before we go on, that as we read this, you'll see in your text, um, if you have your Bible, that they're, like in verse 6, you alone are the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Old Testament, you can open up anywhere in the Old Testament and point, and within just a matter of verses, you will find those capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is how the Old Testament translators translate the name of God. It's, it's the name Yahweh. The King James translated it, translates it Jehovah, but it's the personal name of God. It is the covenant name. It's how he revealed himself to, to Moses in the burning bush. He says, I am that I am. And that is that word, that, that verb to be is, is the word um, that, that the word Yahweh is based out of. He is the God who is. That's what his name means. He is. No matter what, no matter what you think, no matter how people believe, no matter how many people want to deny it, God is. He is God, he exists, and he is there. And so when we look through that, you, your Bible will tell you that, that is the personal name of God. If you looked at the very beginning, there's usually some translation notes at the beginning of the Bible that says it translates the tetragrammaton. That's just a technical way of saying Y-H-W-H because the Hebrew doesn't have vowels. 
It's the personal name of God, and they translate that Lord. Or sometimes God, capital G, capital O, capital D. But whenever you see God's name in capitalized, you could put in the word Yahweh. That is his personal name. And so in the outline, you'll see that says Yahweh is. That's because that's who God is. It is the covenant God of Israel and our Savior and God, the one true God. And so to bless him, they said, bless the Lord, your, arise and bless the Lord your God forever. It means to say the, the best you can say about someone, to speak well. And they're going to say, I'm going to say everything I can. His name is so glorious and majestic and awesome. Our meager praise isn't going to do the trick. Our words cannot describe how great our God is, but we're going to give it a shot, he says. We're going to do whatever we can to make sure that people know who our God is. And as we begin to see who our God is and how he acts in our lives, that should stir us into worship and to joy, and it should cause revival to start springing up and remembering the joy of our salvation, who this God is that we worship. We have this image in our head. He's an old man, big white beard, white robe, Staff in one hand, you know, ready to throw down a lightning bolt whenever we mess up. We have these images of who God is. And let's see what Scripture has to say. And as we gather this, let it impact our lives and change us. So if I were to ask you to sit down and say, when I talk about God, what do you think? What was the first thing that comes to your mind? What would you say? Where would you start? What aspect would you think of? Well, let's look at what the the people in Nehemiah's day started with. And recognizing who God is means, first of all, that, listen, we acknowledge Him as Creator. Yahweh is the Creator. He is. Look in verse 6. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens the heavens of heavens with all their host, and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Listen, you gave life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. The people began to praise God because God's the creator. I know we live in a culture and a world that denies that and says we are Stupid if we don't believe if 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 we believe that God is the creator, that we are not intelligent, that we're denying science if we say that, and I say none of that's true. The science points to an intelligence. It does. And I could go on and talk about the smallest cell having a little tail that wags, of flagellum is what it's called. And there are 40 parts that have to be there for it to work. And if one part is gone, it won't work. And evolution cannot explain how at a cellular level these things have to be there. That there's no explanation how that could be evolved. Look what he covers in these verses. He says, all life comes from Yahweh. So it says, look what it covers. He says, he made the heavens, that is the sky. 
Think of all the life you might see in the sky. And I don't mean, I don't mean the, the stars. I mean just the sky, the birds, and, and uh, maybe even little you know, flies and, and, I don't know, dust particles and just I don't know, whatever might be there. I know that dust particles are not life, but you know what I'm saying. Just all the stuff. And then they praise God because he made the heaven of heavens. It's saying the, 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 the sky, the night sky. And just think of, of the, the billions of stars. And we know now that stars are actually giant balls of burning gas that have planets rotating around them. And there are billions upon billions upon billions of these things all in one galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies out there. And Scripture says God spoke, and these things leapt into existence. That's our God. It's not some sort of random chance or some sort of of, uh, big bang. I suspect when God spoke there was a big bang, but it wasn't just some sort of big bang randomly that happened in which a billion upon billions upon billions of planets just started showing up. They stop, they, they go from looking up, they start looking down at the earth. God made the earth. Our beautiful planet is handcrafted by God. It took his hands, I don't know, he spoke, or whatever he did, and our earth, as amazing as it is, and the earth we know today is marred by sin. So the, the beauty that we see in, in the ocean or in the, uh, in the mountains or, or in the animals that we see, you watch a hummingbird and you're like, this is an amazing animal. Or a bumblebee that is not aerodynamic. It can't fly. It's not supposed to fly. And somehow it flies. And we look at this and we think, this is amazing. And this is creation that has been marred by sin. Imagine what it was when God actually created it perfect and what maybe the new heaven and new earth might look like. God made the earth, but it says everything that's on it. Think of everything that's on the earth. Plants, bugs, horses, kangaroos, sloths, I don't know what, humans. And that's the thing. The scientists, the evolutionists. I'm not, I'm not anti-science. I'm saying look at the science and go where it goes. And the science says evolution does not explain our existence. It doesn't. Don't let them fool you. Evolution has all the answers. It doesn't have all the answers, but they have a lot of answers for life on. But evolution cannot explain how you go from no life to life. There is no explanation for it. They'll admit that. Sometimes they won't admit that. But they will say, they, they will say once life happened, then this happened, and you know, they, you know, we came from monkeys, or well, actually monkeys and us share a common ancestor, they say. That's simply not the case. But they, they have an explanation for that. But they will not talk about no life from life because everything we know, listen, think about life. How do we get plants from seeds? Where do those seeds come from? Another plant. Because life produces life. You see a kid running around. 
You don't say, boy, that kid just kind of popped up out of nowhere. No, it came from life. Life produces life. When you scientifically observe everything that we know, life produces life. And the, and the, and the evolutionists want to say, suspend that intelligent thought when it comes to us. That there was a time there was no life, and then life sprang into existence by chance. That's simply not only bad science, but it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. God made the heavens, the earth, the space, the, you know, spend some time contemplating all that. All the weird creatures of the sea. There was a, a little fish that scientists found, it had a transparent body that was less than a third of an inch. It was the, tiny, the smallest fish they could find. There's that, and then there's the blue whale that can be 300,000 pounds, 82 feet in length. And then everything else, seahorses and octopuses and, and all the other different things. He is the creator. God is the creator, and because he's the creator, he deserves worship. And it says, all the heavenly hosts, that is the angel armies, all the angels that are most powerful creation at this point in time, eventually the scriptures say we'll become higher than the angels, but at this point in time, angels are the most powerful thing ever created, and they bow down to him in worship because he's their creator and they know it. He is the creator God and deserves worship. God is the one responsible for life. And we have to acknowledge that. We, we give scientists a pass. We give media a pass because we say, well, I'm not very scientifically uh, uh, organized in my thought, or I, I can't speak to all the scientific stuff. You don't have to. Because the reality is, God's the creator. That's the truth. And when the truth's on your side, you just can speak the truth and God will work it. But there is science behind it. And the courts have said it's not science, it's religion. Hey, just because the science points to an intelligent designer, God, doesn't mean that it's religious. In fact, Michael Behe, who is a prominent biochemist, he's not a believer in Christ. And he's acknowledged he's not a believer, but this is what he said. And i got a quote up there, a couple of quotes. It's, one says, In private, many scientists admit that science has no explanation for the beginning of life. Darwin never imagined the exquisite, the uh, exquisite, I think I got it wrong, but the ex, the, how exquisitely profound complexity that exists even at the most basic levels of life. When Darwin came up with his theory, he thought a cell was like a blob of jello. That's really what he thought a cell was. And now we can go deep, deep inside the cell and we see things like DNA, which says there's information. They call it a computer program. And you don't have to be scientifically minded to know that computer, you know, Microsoft doesn't hire random number generators to produce their programs, they have programmers to make programs. And if we have programs inside of us, if DNA is programmed, we have a programmer, so to speak. 
It's just the truth of life. He also said, there is no publication in scientific literature in the prestigious journals, especially journals or books, that describe how molecular evolution of any real complex biochemical system either did occur or might even have occurred. He's saying it, it, the, the science doesn't go there. We are brainwashed into saying evolution is the only way life could have occurred but the science doesn't back it up. And so you say, if there's the science, if it doesn't back it up, then why are there scientists staunchly holding on to it? Why won't they uh, agree to it? Well, this is to some of these quotes, why they were asked, why do you hold staunchly, or why do you believe in, in Darwinian evolution? Michael Walker, who was a former senior lecturer at, in anthropology at the University of Sydney, he says, only because it supposedly excludes a creator. He says, I believe in evolution because it gets rid of God. That is the point. They don't want to answer to a God. DMS Watson, who was the chair of evolution at the University of London, says, not because it can be proved by logical, coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. He says, I don't believe in evolution because it can be proven, but because I cannot believe that there was a God who created things. That's not good science, right? <laughs> to rule out a particular cause. Sir Julian Hux Huxley, he was the president of UNESCO. He was the grandson of Darwin's colleague, Thomas Huxley, Huxley. This is what he said. I suppose the reason we leaped at the origin of species was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. If I can believe in evolution, it gets rid of a God, then I can do whatever I want to sexually. That's what he's saying. There are no morals if there is no God. And so I'm going to remove God so I can live how I want to. Look, the key to the whole debate and the origin of life is captured right here in Nehemiah. If there's a creator, then you're answerable to him. If there's a creator, you have to worship him, or if you reject him, you must suffer the consequences. And so to acknowledge God as the creator God is, is one of the first steps in moving toward moving toward revival. But if a person can get rid of the notion of the creator, if I can get rid of the idea that there is a God who created me, then I am my own king. I sit on the throne of my own life. I can live how I want. I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want. And I'm answerable to no one. They think. That's the core of Darwinian evolution. So we must be willing to stand against the torrent of current opinion that says Darwinian evolution is the only way to answer life. I know I'm going on about this, but it is embedded in our thought. There might even be some, some here that are saying, I hear what you're saying, but surely evolution's still part of the deal. Scripture says, God formed man, he breathed life into man, and he was a special creation of God. Now, 
and stand against the crowd and proclaim that God is the creator of life and he demands our worship. That means he has the power and authority over everything. If we want revival in our life, we need to acknowledge that. He's the creator. He's in control of my life. He's not something I can add in when I want to. He's the creator and sustainer of my life. I, we, we read in my Sunday school, he, we move and exist and have our being because he decides it. That's the first step of moving toward, toward revela- uh, uh, revival. So to experience revival, we need to acknowledge who God is, and that means we surrender to him as our creator That's just the first thing. Second thing he says is that we need to recognize Yahweh is the covenant keeper. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. You are Yahweh God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Earl of Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous." People moved from Genesis 1 and 2 about creation. They started moving to Genesis 12 through 17, talking about Abraham. To understand the Bible, you need to understand the covenant of Abraham. If you miss the covenant of Abraham, you miss one of the main themes of Scripture. That God is a covenant keeper. That he made a promise with Abraham, and that promise has not only been mostly fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled in the future. The promise of many descendants, the promise of land, the promise that he gave. If someone hurts his people, that God will hurt them. And if they, doesn't, if they bless his people, they will bless him. I don't want to be political, but there is a real consequence of being in, in line politically with Israel. Because God made a covenant... And he's a covenant keeper. Abraham was first named Abram. That's what he says. And the name means exalted father. And remember, that's a tough name to have if you're childless. Him and Sarai were childless for years. And his name was Abram. And I suppose after a while that they hadn't had kids, weren't able to have kids. It was almost a mocking, hey, Exalted Father, how you doing today? And it was just another pinprick that I don't have a child. I don't have an heir. Here comes the exalted Father, and Sarah and him were childless. But Abraham, what, that, that's, that's where God found Abraham. He was in the Earl of Chaldees. Right now, if, if we were to go to the Chaldees, that's essentially Iraq. And it says in Joshua 24, 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your father lived beyond the river. And that's talking about the river Euphrates that runs right through Iraq into the, uh, into the uh, Persian Gulf down there by Kuwait. And he says, Namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and served other gods. The point is, Abraham was... Uh, a childless person who lived in Iraq. He was an Iraqi, so to speak, not really, but, you know, the Iraq wasn't around at the time, but he lived in that area, Babylon area, 
and worshipped other gods. He was an idolater. And God says, I choose you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to change the trajectory of your life. And God began by giving Abraham a new name. He gave him a new name that would fit what God was going to do through him. He says, you're not going to be called exalted father Abram. You're going to be called Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. God made a covenant with him. He says, you're going to have descendants you can't even count. He takes them out and says, look at the stars in the sky. See how many there are? Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. He says, look at the grains of the sand. Your, your, your descendants are going to be like the grains of the sand. And Abraham had one kid. Actually, he had two, but that's the whole thing. Through Sarah, he had one kid, Isaac. And as far as we know, Isaac had two kids. And then all of a sudden, one of those, Jacob, had 12 kids. <laughs> And it just started going and going and going. And then the New Testament says, as believers, we are, as believers are grafted into Abraham's family, so we are counted as descendants of Abraham. And you think of all, not only the Jewish people, but all believers who have ever known Christ in existence for the last 2,000 and some years. And Abraham's descendants are more than the stars in the sky because God is a covenant keeper. He says, I will do what I said I'm going to do. In Abraham's day, when someone made a covenant, they would split those, the, the animals. They'd bring animals and they'd split them in two and they'd make a path in between the, the, the halves of the animal. And then the people would walk through those animals that are halved on each side of them and they would say they're part of the covenant. These are the things that I'm going to do. And each person would go through, and when they're doing that, they're essentially saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, then let, this, let me be halved like these animals, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant. A covenant is not a contract. A contract says that if somebody doesn't fulfill their end of the bargain, then the deal is off. That's a, that's, that's a contract. A covenant says, I'm going to fulfill my end no matter what you do. That's why a marriage is a covenant and not a contract. A contract's like a doctor's appointment. You go to the doctor, or if you don't go to your doctor appointment, you got a doctor's appointment, and, and you don't go, the doctor doesn't start chasing you down. Right? The doctor says, they're not here, next patient. Just moves on. Because there was an unwritten, kind of informal contract that says, I'm going to show up on time, and he's going to do his work. He says, you didn't fulfill your end, so I'm not obligated to do mine. That's, that's, a, that's a contract. A covenant's more like a parent. If your kid doesn't show up for dinner, you don't say, tough luck, kid didn't show up for dinner. All right? Not the little ones. You go find where your kid's at and say, hey, where are you at? You go find them. You say, you got to go eat. And you, you've got obligations. Whether they fulfill their end or not, you've got things you have to do. That's more like a covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. We see this in Genesis, Genesis 15. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's worth reading. And you might, I don't know, mark it in your scripture because this is 
This is a covenant. This is God. They actually call it cutting a covenant because they cut these animals in half. Genesis 15, and God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Well, they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I'll also judge the nation whom they serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. For as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they'll return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete and it came about when sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river Egypt, that would be the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The smoking torch. The oven, the flaming torch, represents God walking through these pieces and saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. No matter what you do, here's what I'm going to do. And he tells them they're going to go to Egypt. He doesn't tell them Egypt, but he says they're going to go to Egypt for 400 years. You're going to do all this. I'm going to bring them back. And I'll give this land to you. And he makes a covenant and he keeps it because God is a covenant maker. And even at this time, when God promised Abram this, he was 75 years old, his wife was 65 years old. They have no descendants. They have given up long ago any thought of having children, let alone many, 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 many descendants. Abraham thought, I'm going to die and my line will end with me. And God says, I've got different plans. And I'll make a promise with you, it's going to be different. And he's a covenant keeper. Romans 4, 18, 21 says, in hope, talking about Abram, Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed that when God made this covenant, he says, I have no idea how it's going to happen, but I'm going to trust in God because God keeps his word. And hope against hope he believes so that he might become the father of many nations according to what had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. That is, I'm an old man, but I'm going to have faith that God can do this. But now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. When God changed Abraham's name, he gave him a covenant. He says, you're going to be the multitude of many. 
because God keeps his promises, it happened. Romans 4, 3 says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The story is important to Nehemiah's day. They had just returned from Babylon after 70 years of being in slavery. And they needed to know that God was going to be there for them. They needed to know that God was going to to, uh, take care of them. That he he, he promised care. And they're saying, God has covenanted that we are going to be back. You can read Jeremiah and he promises you're going to be back from Babylon and you're going to prosper. And so they said, God is a covenant keeper. We're going to believe him. When we, we think of God as the covenant keeper, we need to understand that God has given us promises. He says to those who've trusted in Christ, you will never taste death. If you've trusted in Christ, he's going to keep his word. He says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you trusted in Christ, listen, there is no condemnation because he's a covenant keeper if we've trusted in Christ we can trust in what he has said there is so much so many promises that we have in scripture toward us that we can trust in and many times we read it and we say that might be a promise for that person but I don't think he'll fulfill that for me. And we're denying that God is a covenant keeper. And if we deny who God is, there's going to be no revival in our life. I don't know how God would have you respond. I know there's more in the outline and we'll cover it next week. But God is the creator God and he makes promises and he keeps those promises. And maybe today you just need encouraged to remember that if you've trusted in him, if you've trusted in him, you can, you can be guaranteed the promises that he's given you. You're guaranteed eternal life. You're guaranteed forgiveness of sin. You're guaranteed guidance in life, the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. And maybe today you just need to to re-give your life to Him, that you are a believer and you haven't been following Him and, and you have not acknowledged Him as the creator and therefore ruler of your life, or you don't believe that he, is, that, you, that he is a good God, that because of circumstances in your life or things that have happened, that He hasn't treated you like He promised to treat you and you deny Him the covenant keeper. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think, how is God speaking to you today? Maybe you're someone who's never trusted in God. Maybe you need Christ in your life for the first time. You never knew. You never heard anyone tell you that he is the creator. And you recognize if he is the creator, I must answer to him. And you never knew that we had a God who keeps his promises. 
however God is moving, I pray that you would respond. Lord God, we do acknowledge you as the creator and sustainer of life. And we only exist by your will. Our cells are held together simply because you desire it. And I pray that as we think about you as creator, that would renew in us a sense of worship and surrender to you. And I pray as we think of you as the covenant keeper, that we would, our minds would be drawn to all the promises we have in Scripture. The promise of salvation. The promise that we ha- can beat death through Jesus Christ. The promises that you give us for hope and life in, in this life. I pray you would encourage us and stir us with that. Lord, if there's anyone here who needs to make a decision, maybe turn their life back over to you, maybe come to know you for the first time, I pray that they would respond in however manner that you are, you are moving them and stirring them right now. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.